This episode is sponsored by Patagonia. In 1972, Chenard Equipment bet the farm, urging climbers to stop using their best-selling product in order to protect the rock. Clean climbing, making the switch from pitons to chocks, fundamentally changed both the art of the sport and the ethos of the community. It was climbing's first environmental movement and instilled the values that drive Patagonia to this day. But more importantly, it was a challenge. What are climbers capable of achieving in order to protect the places we love? 50 years later, Patagonia is asking that question again. They're still committed to the vertical wilderness and putting style over summit. It's a commitment to the sport we love, their technical climb product, and the planet we're still working to save. Go to patagonia.com slash clean climbing to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Sterling. A wet rope is heavy, hard to handle, and can be flat out dangerous. That's why Sterling developed their new line of dry climbing ropes using Zero's technology. Zero's is a whole new way to manufacture UIAA certified dry ropes that are more effective, wear resistant, better for the environment, and only available from Sterling. Visit sterlingrope.com to learn more and use the code DIRTBACK for 15% off. And you can also find these links in our show notes. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we've got a zine classic here. This one is called Adventures with Two Tent Timmy, and it was published originally in Volume 3 of the Climbing Zine, which came out in 2011, so damn, over a decade ago. I love this story. I wrote this story, and it's going to be given a new life in the Climbing Zine Book 2 which is uh, now available for pre-order. We've been, yeah, making books out of the old zines um, so that the stories can live on, republishing the stories. And anyone who knows me knows I'm a big believer in print and sitting down with something. And I think as climbers, because we often go to places where our phones don't work, I think we appreciate this stuff even more. And I think climbers also really appreciate tangible things. Two-Tent Timmy is my childhood best friend. Uh, We're still friends today. We're going down to Mexico together to Potrero and beyond uh, in December. And anyone who knows this guy just knows he's one of the sweetest human beings on the planet. You can pre-order the Climbing Zine book too. We'll leave a link in our notes or you can just head over to climbingzine.com. And if you want to support this podcast, um, check us out on Patreon. Those links are also at climbingzine.com. We've got a modest following. We'd love to grow that. My goal was $1,000 by the end of the year. I think we're only at maybe 200 bucks right now. So you could definitely use the love there. Podcasts are, are free, so we definitely need your support. This episode of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter Board. The Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter Board layout, and the newer Homeboard layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set Tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. 
The new map feature helps you find and connect to kilter boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple ball sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. All right, let's get into Adventures with Two Tent Timmy. Some call him Two-Tent Timmy, some Gold-Tooth Timmy, while others may know him by his comedic pseudo-weatherman name, T-Drizzle. I call him all of these, as well as my best friend. But before he was the guy who lived up in the hills of Crested Butte, Colorado, in a tent, inside a tent, before he knocked his front teeth out in a brutal breakdancing accident, which left him with a front gold tooth, he was just Tim. I've known Tim since we were kids going to the same Catholic church in the flatlands of Illinois. We were both confirmed in the Catholic faith together, both at the pressure of our families. In junior high and the first couple years of high school, we knew each other, but really didn't know each other. Once, I remember a fellow churchgoer scolded us for talking during the Mass. This is when we had the freedom of transportation at 16 and go do the things that kids do when they're ditching church. In one way or another, we both found the Grateful Dead. It seems cliche now, but if we'd never started listening to the bootlegs and then reading the literature that covered the band and the Deadheads, we never would have made it out onto the road, and eventually out west, where we both reside. We also both decided to tune in, turn on, and drop out. Like many a bored teenager, we experimented with most of the chemicals we could get our hands on. Alcohol got us into the most trouble with the law, and the funny thing was the most illegal and powerful of the substances never brought us into contact with the police, maybe because we were melted into the couch and we were lost with Jerry Garcia in a world we desperately wanted to be a part of. I've never tried to write about LSD or mushrooms and don't really know if I could. Pick up some Timothy Leary for that. They can take you somewhere, though, and in a safe environment, it can be a powerful experience of examination of one's path in life and illumination of the third eye. It's a shame people are sitting in jail right now for being busted with psychedelics. We missed the bus, though. Jerry died just as we started tuning in, and the Grateful Dead was no more. With things that people want to be a part of, the torch has always passed in some way, and we discovered fish and decided to follow them around. Fish gave us the very first taste of the road in a subculture that was very different from what we grew up with. Dreadlocks, marijuana, systems of bartering, art, jewelry, hippie girls in sundresses, and people that smiled and talked to strangers. 
We would follow them around for a week or so at a time to Deer Creek, Indiana, to Alpine Valley, Wisconsin, all the way down to Tennessee. Our hair grew longer and our minds changed about the landscape and our culture. I was the first to take the journey out west and moved to Gunnison, Colorado to attend college, a town that could be considered a quintessential representation of small town Western America, a strong community surrounded by a million acres of wild lands. I practically begged Tim to move out there and be my roommate. He was going to school in Decatur, Illinois, and I knew he would love Colorado if he just took the leap. Plus, I needed him, too. Moving to a small town in the mountains by yourself is intimidating, and there is a process to it, which involves some loneliness and suffering. Tim didn't seem interested at first. Perhaps it was my pathetic attempt of a pitch telling him that Gunnison was the greatest place on earth. But he came out anyways, and we moved into a two- bedroom apartment that fall. By now, we were both still into the Grateful Dead and Fish, but our interest in psychedelics was fading. Something just as powerful had us by the horns, something much healthier for a young soul in his 20s. It was called rock climbing. The interest began in Illinois. We happened to grow up 10 minutes from a climbing gym that was once billed as the largest in the world, a series of connected 80-foot grain silos that were cleaned out and modified into climbing walls. We had a friend that shared interest in the hippie scene and also mentored us on the proper ways to go climbing. A small miracle that all of those things aligned in a town called Normal, Illinois. A climber can only go so far in the flatlands before his soul resigns to the fact that he desires cliffs and mountain vistas. Once you've seen these sights, they remain within the heart forever. Luckily, we were out west and in Gunnison, where the rock-climbing cliffs are seemingly infinite. I took Tim climbing for the first time in those grain silos, but it wasn't until we were out west together that we truly experienced climbing. I thought I was the teacher, but Tim seemed to have a grasp on the gumption and bravery that is needed for climbing more than I did. I had a better understanding on the technical aspects of it, how to place traditional gear into a crack, and how to build an anchor to dangle in the air on a multi-pitch route, so we made a good pair. I don't know where Tim got his climbing ability, and it seemed to come from inside, an intuitive thing, but whatever it was, he had it, and he was hooked on climbing from the minute he touched down in the Rocky Mountains. Perhaps it was because he grew up as a wrestler, I've known many wrestlers who make good climbers. They're in good physical condition, don't mind a little suffering, and can sustain their bodies on very little food and water for a day of toil. Plus, climbing a crack is a bit of wrestling in itself, hanging on, adjusting one's body to overcome, to fight the good fight, and hang on and be victorious. Many climbers spend a year or two in an apprenticeship phase of traditional climbing, and this is the method that is recommended. Climbing is more full of fear than actual danger for the average climber. But, that said, the first two years of climbing can be the most dangerous. There are simple mistakes that one can make in climbing that could be the end of your career right then and there. In climbing, you only really get one big mistake to make. I took a more conservative approach to learning about climbing joining the college's mountain rescue team and learning about anchors and taking many recreation courses that taught basic climbing skills. Tim just jumped in, head first, but luckily we were a duo and we looked out 
for one another. And the very first gear anchor that Tim ever built was in the Black Canyon. The Black is known to every traditional climber in the country, and only experienced by a percentage. It has a fearsome reputation of being an intimidating place to climb, with loose rock, runouts, unruly vegetation, and the cracks. One gaze at the walls from a protective railing, looking straight down the 2,000-foot walls, is enough to put a knot in one's stomach, and some only get that far. But the secret is that if one can muster enough courage to simply get down in the canyon, several moderate routes await that the average traditional climber can be successful on. And from there, infinite challenges await. So we picked the moderate of all moderates, Maiden Voyage. It's a 5.9 that most trad climbers could do in a few hours. And even though it was Tim's second trad route and his first building anchors, it was already within his physical abilities. So he cruised up the first slab of the route, built an anchor, and belayed me up. I reached his anchor and felt my heart sink into my stomach. There was one tipped-out cam and a shady-looking hex, enough to make me worry that to weight the anchor the wrong way, it would fail. It would be falling to our deaths 100 feet below. I immediately started an anchor-building lesson, and we plugged more gear into the crack. The rest of the climb went slow, but smooth, and we were on to other adventures. Tim practiced more on building anchors, and once you have that skill, you've got it forever. He wasn't scared that day when I freaked out about his questionable gear placement, and I realized that he felt perfectly at ease in the vertical world while I was always on edge. Making plans over beer and the ganja was easy. Following through and entering the vertical was another thing, the raw experience. Celebrating it all, that was the best, and after scaring yourself silly and coming through the climb intact, well, that was always cause for celebration. I remember celebrating successful climb of the Yellow Spur in El Dorado Canyon near Boulder, Colorado, and I can also recall how I dreaded that climb beforehand. I dreaded every multi-pitch climb with Tim. At the time, I thought he was just so confident and fearless. In reality, he was just living in the moment and in tune with his surroundings and abilities. I desperately wanted to be a trad climber. But whatever it was that Tim had, I didn't have. But luckily, I had Tim. We did the yellow spur in winter, and Tim was the driving force behind it. The climb went in a typical fashion. Tim would get us starting with leading. I would lead a pitch, usually have some sort of meltdown, and he would lead for the rest of the day. So that happened, I was out of my comfort zone and scared and wondering if I was indeed meant to spend my days hanging hundreds of feet off the ground, and Tim would set off leading. In these moments, he became a hero, because I could not grasp where he got the bravery to lead so far off the ground. I would look around the pine trees so far below that they seemed foreign, like looking down to earth from a plane. I could smell them, an intoxicating smell that made me feel alive. Tim would just keep going, and I fed out rope and encouraged him. Nice work, Timmy. Cruising, man. Birds circled. What lucky individuals were we that we could spend time where only the birds did? The rocket Eldo was almost psychedelic in itself, and I remember striking yellow lichen on maroon walls. I remember following Tim for a few pitches, and finally we came to a knife ridge. It was probably ridiculously easy, but dropped down on both sides, with hundreds of feet of air beneath. I sent him to go first, 
and he completed it with ease, no protection, just speeding me the rope as he leisurely crossed the void. He belayed me over, and then we made a major mistake, like beginners often do, taking the path of most resistance instead of least resistance. Instead of making a few rappels down the face of the base of the climb, we hiked and hiked down a snowy gully in the dark without headlamps. One of those descents where a fall would have turned us into another story of lost young climbers that made common mistakes and got hurt, where so many seemed to get hurt in the famous Eldo Canyon. We had some sort of luck on our side, and freezing, but feeling very alive, we arrived back at Tim's little purple Ford truck, intact. We had more winter climbing adventures. We weren't really alpine climbers, but we would get ideas in our head by looking at magazines and guidebooks, and we just couldn't wait until spring. Memories filled with climbing at our home crag, Taylor Canyon, climbing 5.6 to 5.8 routes with a foot of snow on belay ledges, out there, sealing our fate as climbers. When that spring rolled around, I was still scared of everything that related to be a couple hundred feet above the ground. But Tim and I still kept talking about ideas in the nighttime, and he insisted we follow through. I suppose I owe him everything for that. For a young person has to be brave in one way or another, or he or she is destined to live a life that he or she does not want to, as I believe many Americans do. They have these passions and urges deep inside that come alive when they are ten beers deep or watching a thrilling movie, when they see that woman who sends butterflies to places so deep he never knew they existed. Tim kept that place alive within me because he didn't only talk of climbing, he led the climb and he did it with grace and style. Of course, any young climber in Colorado will make his way to the desert, to the red rocks that start in western Colorado and seem to go forever through Utah. We were a team of three this time, with our wide-eyed companion, Jared, who was also teaching me about being brave and facing fear. We would have been a team of four, with Jared's best friend, Josh, but he was on house arrest, and he wished us well from his Grand Junction home when we stopped by to say hello on our way out. His eyes reflected a longing to go, but a feeling that he would be in our position someday, as he was only serving a short sentence. We drove that spring evening into the night, into the river road just outside of Moab, where there are many towers. There was a moon, not a full moon, but enough to see the silhouettes in the night. Around a bend, we were looking for a place to camp for the night, and there appeared a striking tower, almost a beacon, a lighthouse of sorts. Let's climb that thing, one of us said. We didn't know it, but it was Castleton Tower. Well, there was a campsite by it, so we camped there. And after searching through Jared's newly purchased guidebook, we discovered there was a 5'9 chimney up the thing. We were experienced enough to know now that a 5'9 could be hard, and for that matter, a 5'9 chimney should be hard. I wanted nothing to do with leading, But of course, Tim was up for the challenge, even though we only had a number four Camelot as our biggest piece, and none of us had much experience climbing towers. I quickly opted to lead the easiest pitches of the route, leaving the more difficult ones for Jared and Tim. The climb started with a 5'6 chimney, and I nervously scurried up. Castle Valley is perched just east of the LaSalle Mountains, and in the spring they are covered in snow, making a dramatic backdrop for the Red Rock Towers. Again, I felt so out of my element and wondered how my life suddenly became so intertwined with rock climbing. I finished the pitch and brought the homies up. 
And Jared set off for the next pitch, a tricky and wide 5-8 that he wormed his way up with grace, placing the meager selection of cams and wiggling some hexes in. The wide chimney pitch was next, and, of course, we sent Tim up. He wiggled his way in the thing, barely placing any gear, fearlessly. Though we were only a few pitches up, the exposure was dramatic. Jared's presence at the belay made me feel more at ease, though I still felt all I wanted to do in the world was be back on the ground. Tim's execution of the chimney pitch was impressive. He'd never climbed on sandstone before and had only been rock climbing for less than a year, all on granite. Climbing sandstone is another art form. While granite is mostly solid, sandstone cannot be trusted as much and begs one to be more delicate. As Tim progressed on the pitch, Jared and I just looked down at each other and we knew on any climb, Tim was a secret weapon. Standing on top of a tower means that the physical challenges are over. All there is to do is embrace the landscape, look one way to snow-capped mountains and the other to more red rock, the desolate environment that is the complete opposite of a city. Take photos, sign the registry, shake hands, and finally, rig up the rappels. Well, this day, while rappelling the north face, Tim went past one of the rap stations, so he had to rig a system to climb back up the ropes. This can be a very dangerous thing, and many climbers have been injured or died while rappelling. Tim was still learning the ropes, if you will, and the system that he rigged to climb back up was probably unconventional. He simply climbed up the 5.11 crack that is the first pitch of the north face route while feeding the rope through his belay device and tying an occasional backup knot. There is a sinking feeling when your partner is below and you really don't know what's going on down there. But as soon as Jared and I were really worried, Tim appeared with one of those mile-long gazes, and we were relieved. Walking back off the tower, it became dark, so we stumbled and snubbled until we were back at camp out of water and dehydrated, but we had survived another adventure. The stars were our landscape now, and just as the expansive desert quickly makes one realize that we are living out our lives in an environment that most don't, the nighttime sky reminded us that we are living lives of adventure. Stopping back in Grand Junction, Josh was jealous, but inspired by our climb. Josh had that look in his eyes, that fire that one often sees in a climber in their younger 20s, the knowing that nothing else in the horizontal life could match the intoxicating intensity of the vertical world. We told him all the details, and he pined for climbing with a desire that made us feel what he was feeling. Tim and I were planning our first trip to Yosemite when we got the news from Jared. He told me to make sure that I was sitting down. Josh had been killed in a motorcycle accident. We traveled up to Grand Junction for the funeral. Although Tim had only met Josh that one time he came with as well. I remember Josh's mother hugging us intensely. We heard stories about Josh. The most memorable being that he had to do some community service at a church and climbed up into the crevices of the old church that had to be cleaned out where no one else dared to go. I imagined him spread eagle in a chimney way up with a nun or someone looking on of giving him instructions of what to do. How we felt for Jared. We'd only known Josh briefly. I imagined losing Tim, and I could not fathom it. I remember crying for Josh every time I was alone for a week after. I was depressed, and probably would have bailed on that Yosemite trip if it wasn't for Tim. He wasn't having any of that. And just a week after Josh died, we set sail for Yosemite in the purple truck. 
crossing the desert to the valley was sublime. I think in those days, I enjoyed the adventures in the truck just as much as the climbing. Everything was new. Many Americans only see the desolate west of Highway 50 in the movies. Caffeine and weed kept us burning, and we rolled into Yosemite very early in the morning, haggard and tired, or at least I was. I'd never seen a look of focus and fire in anyone's eyes before we arrived in Yosemite for the first time. This is an important first for the rock climber, seeing the famous walls that your eyes have only witnessed in photographs and in film. El Cap, you know it when your eyes are upon it. There's no questioning what you're looking at. It's the captain, and I knew in that moment how far I had to go as a climber. In some way, like looking down the guardrail in the Black Canyon, I wanted to go back home and forget about climbing. That look in Tim's eyes, it was piercing. This array of granite walls and towers amongst the gigantic towering pine trees reflected to the fire of his soul, and he had arrived exactly where he was supposed to be at that juncture in life, and he was meant to climb these walls. That look was enough for me to know that I would get through another climbing adventure, if only through Tim's burning desire. I felt the pressure mounting, and Tim insisted we climb something the very day upon arriving. We decided to go for a climb called Braille Book, a 5'8 way up a gully in the cathedrals. Hiking up the hill after many hours in the car felt brutal, and the granite walls that surrounded us gave me a sinking feeling that I was already in over my head, even as we hiked for our warm-up climb. As we arrived at the climb, we realized that there was already a party on the route, a common occurrence for any popular climb in Yosemite. We sat back where the party could not see us and figured we'd just wait it out and get on the route when they were a ways up. I was always secretly relieved when something slowed Tim down. Weather, other people on the route, not being able to find the route, these were all blessings in disguise for me not wanting to face my fears. The scene that unfolded on Braille Book was something we still talk about to this day. The party was just two guys who seemed more out of their element than I did. They climbed very slowly and made commands every time they placed a piece of gear. Point, the leader would say as he put something into the crack. Point, the belayer would reply. They were wearing camouflage shirts and pants and apparently had received some sort of training for climbing in the military. We started to giggle at their ridiculousness, and a wave of relief overcame me. I wasn't the worst or most scared climber in Yosemite. Their progress was so incredibly slow that those guys might still be up there to this day. We laughed and joked about their point system all the way back to the car and got beers. The objective then changed to Nutcracker, one of the many all-time classic moderate routes of Yosemite, a 4 pitch 5-9 that has been climbed by thousands and thousands of people. This I felt good about, and Tim was game for anything and everything. He just wanted to get up on the walls. Somehow we managed to start climbing on the wrong formation, Yosemite, all the formations are now imprinted in my mind after years of climbing there, but then it was El Cap and Half Dome and everything else was a mystery. Tim climbed up on some rock that we convinced ourselves resembled the description from the topo and ended up running out a crack on a slab, clipping some bolts at the top and bringing me up. The rock was full of lichen and dirty, and I was thinking that there was no way this could be Nutcracker. I arrived at Tim's anchor, two rusty old bolts, and my belief was confirmed. We bailed, hiked around some more, and then finally found the start to Nutcracker and made plans to return in the morning. We returned and got in line for the Nutcracker. There was a party in front of us and another behind us. 
The climb went smoothly, though at one point I remember being so gripped on a 5-8 pitch that I had to calm myself down with a mantra, chanting our fallen friend Josh's name, along with the name of a legendary Yosemite climber who had also passed away a few years before. Walt Sipley, Josh Burdick. It seems so ridiculous now to think about it, but that was the way it happened. Tim was in his element and cruised all of his leads. We knew little of the rules of Yosemite and camped by just putting down our sleeping bags wherever we felt like it. Of course, this doesn't last long without an encounter with a ranger. And we learned that lesson the hard way, woken up in the middle of the night by a ranger asking us what the hell we were doing sleeping just next to the road. I suppose getting hassled by a ranger in Yosemite is a rite of passage in some strange way for a climber. Even the often climbed moderate classics of Yosemite were an adventure on that trip including the central pillar of frenzy on the middle cathedral. Somehow, we walked all the way from the opposite side of the valley to get to this climb and found ourselves wading through the Merced River on the approach. A ridiculous way. It felt so adventurous, though, like discovering how to live like Huck Finn in our early 20s. The essence of climbing is where all the beauty, adventure, and joy exists. This climb is splitter, if I do recall correctly. Funny what one remembers from a climb a decade ago. I remember Tim leading up, smoothly of course, and after a couple pitches, it was my lead. El Capitan loomed behind us, the only audience for our journey up the five-pitch route. Tim handed the rack over to me for a stout 5-9 crack pitch. I started jamming up, and then I almost went into my meltdown mode, where I would face my fear with fear and give up. I started to complain to Tim, 15 feet below me. This is hard, Tim. I don't know. He glanced back with this look and said something like, it's not going to get any easier, and stared at me more intensely. With Tim's look and the presence of El Cat behind us, something moved within me, and I dug deep inside and was able to complete the pitch with some style. Tim's leads were controlled efforts, jamming his hands and feet into the perfect granite cracks, up and somewhere higher. Something happened with the rappel and we got our rope stuck. We made it back to the ground and hitchhiked back to the purple truck. It was a European couple that picked us up, and it was fun to hitchhike. We'd rarely done it before. Tim showed more of his Zen crack climbing skills in Yosemite, leading all the way up to 510D at the crags. All this in basically his first year of climbing. We smoked and drank and ate ice cream and enjoyed the horizontal just as much as the vertical. Finally, our time was coming to an end, and we picked out one last adventure. We decided to hike up to Half Dome and climb the moderate snake dike. I found a free online topo for the climb on supertopo.com, and we'd been studying it for months. I was nervous about the run out 5-7, but I could always have Tim lead that stuff. With packs, we hiked miles and miles up the trail. We were going to camp out near the base of the climb and then go up the following morning. I remember being nervous until running into a family of six that had just climbed the route, a dad and his five kids. That night, we ate cold beans out of a can and dreamed of food. Tim didn't even bring a sleeping bag, and acting like he didn't need one, curled up with very little. In the morning, we found our way to the slabby snake dike. I got scared in a 5-7 pitch, but managed to keep it together. The rest of the climb went up an easy, run-out dike system. We topped out to 100 tourists atop Half Dome, who marveled at our climbing gear as we looked out across the Yosemite Valley. It was interesting to climb down the fourth-class cables routes on the backside and see timid tourists freaking out over the exposure. I guess there was a part of me in that unwarranted fear that they put on display. 
We walked miles and miles down the trail, past hundreds of hikers, to find our packs at the base of Snake Dyke. Now in repose, I would like to think I was thinking about how grateful I was to have a partner like Tim, who tolerated my slow learning curve and climbing, but I was probably just thinking about ice cream and food. It was a long journey home in the purple truck, but there was that satisfaction of a good climbing trip in the air. Our first real big trip together. Nothing epic by any sort of climbing standards, but big enough for me. Tim and I moved out of our apartment, and we both moved into tents for the rest of the fall. He received the nickname Two Tent Timmy when he had a tent inside of a tent rigged up in the hills of Crested Butte, the mountain town just north of Gunnison. Gold Tooth Timmy came later when he knocked out his front teeth in a breakdancing accident. Ironically, this coincided with his first day of downhill skiing ever. Neither activity stuck for him. The nickname T-Drizzle was inspired when he was dressed as a weatherman with a mustache for Halloween. Still, to this day, Tim is ready at any moment to give an impromptu weather forecast. He's known in our circles to be climbing's first weatherman. We climb more, sometimes together, sometimes with other partners. As the years unfolded, we climbed together less and less. No falling out, just living life. He moved to Oregon, which put a great amount of distance between us. Ironically, it was me who went full on to the climbing life, as I paid my dues to learn to climb at various areas around the West and in Mexico, living in a tent for months at a time and scrounging by on the money I saved from various jobs. This past winter, Tim and I reconnected. We were both home in Illinois visiting for the holidays. Now in our 30s, a trip back to the old gym in Illinois was as nostalgic as gym climbing can be. Tim hadn't climbed much in the last four years, but he was itching to get back into it. A couple of young kids from Iowa were visiting the gym and noticed my shirt said Gunnison, Colorado on the back. One of them had visited Gunnison the previous summer, and we talked about the majesty of the outdoor opportunities there. I looked at the youngsters and wondered if they had similar adventures to look forward as their 20s unfolded. I hoped so. We rented a lead line and went about our workout at the gym where it all started. I let a climb, Tim top roped it, and then it was time for a lead of his own. He picked out an overhanging 510. He tied in and set off, slowly climbing up the wall till it got steep. He was getting tense, and I could still he was struggling with his lead head, even in the gym. After about 20 feet, he yelled down to take and rested on the rope. Here was my hero, back to square one with climbing. He handled the setback like a champion. I think athletes define themselves by how they handle defeat as much as how they handle success. Tim didn't throw a fit, didn't curse in anger. He just simply tried again and again. Finally, he was just resigned to the fact that he didn't have it and he lowered off. But it was on. We talked about plans to get Tim back in shape. He was on a break from work and my employment at the moment consisted solely of freelance writing. Plus, I was living in Durango, Colorado, a great winter climbing locale, and just over two hours from the Red Rock, Utah desert. Plans were set to climb again. Tim drove out from Illinois to meet me in Durango. We started off by hitting up the local sport climbing crag, the golf wall, where everything is overhanging. Again, progress was a struggle for Tim, as he built up his strength by working out some steep 510s. We also hit up the local traditional crag, East Animus, and eventually made our way out to Indian Creek, the crack climbing mecca, only two and a half hours from Durango. At the creek, Tim quickly regained his prowess. It wasn't long before he was leading 510s and even getting into 511s. His strength was coming back, and so 
was his mental fortitude, his lead head. Other friends who'd climbed up with us remarked how incredible his ability was after four years off. It was great to have a reunion with my best friend. Our abilities were finally on a similar level, and we had a great time just camping and chilling together again. Something that often gets lost when climbing is recorded and put into words is the down moments. When you're not climbing, those horizontal moments, watching the sunset over the campsite, even just sitting at the crag, experiencing freedom, friendship. One day of climbing led into another, and more and more plans and ideas were hatched. Eventually, it was time for Tim to head back to Oregon. Of course, we made a trip to the desert before he left, a few days at the creek, and then a visit to the towers of Castle Valley to cap it all off. It was incredible how fast Tim got his strength back and how quickly roles reversed. After a couple weeks of training, bringing him back to his previous climbing fitness, I was again trying to keep up with him. Plus, he had the fire, and no climber is complete without the fire. On day three of our visit to Indian Creek, I resigned to top roping what he could set up. He was still going, energized. He remarked how he had to get it all in before he went back home. Day four on, we headed over to Castle Valley for a lap up Castleton. It had been 10 years since we first climbed it. I couldn't help but think of a verse from the Pink Floyd song, Dark Side of the Moon, as we hiked up to the base of the tower. You are young, and life is long, and there is time to kill today. And then one day, you find 10 years have gone behind you. 10 years. I pieced together the math as we hiked up. We talked about our friend Jared, who didn't climb anymore, but was happily married and living out in Washington. I thought of Josh, our friend that never made it past 21 years old. I thought of how comfortable the vertical world was becoming as we aged into our 30s, like home. There was no nervousness about Castleton Tower. I was even going to lead that Crux 5-9 chimney pitch. I knew it'd still be difficult. These type of things never get easy, but in many ways, this is what I was living for the gratifying physical and spiritual challenge that is climbing. The view of the LaSalle Mountains to the west, still impressive and striking. The red rock expanse of the desert, still inviting. Not much had changed in the last 10 years. We progress up the tower at a satisfying pace, remarking how impressed we were with our younger selves, climbing the route with significantly less gear 10 years ago. I worm my way up the crux chimney pitch, tired as we'd been climbing four days in a row, but happily, strolling through memory lane, stronger physically and mentally than I was when I was 22. No one was around that day. We had the whole expanse to ourselves. The summit provided the view that it always does, the same view that it did 10 years ago. But our eyes were different. I looked over to my companion, my best friend, the one I owe my climbing existence to, the one who showed me how to live through climbing. We rigged our rappel, made it back down to the ground safely, and walk back to camp as we talked about returning to various routes in the vertical world together again and again. All right, that was Adventures with Two Tent Timmy, originally published in volume three of The Climbing Zine, back when the zine was just a dream. Music for this episode is by Devin Dabney. Devin and I are working on the Microdose Mixtape, which should be out later this year or early next year. Uh, it's a collection of my poetry with his music, and we're doing it mixtape style. And we're both really, really excited about it. 
You can also check out his podcast, The American Climbing Project. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. Chad's been with me since day one on this thing. And uh, ever grateful for Chad and his work on this podcast and helping it sound great and also create it what it is today. All right, signing off from Splitter, Rocktober, Durango, Colorado. I'm Luke Mihal. Peace.